0: Welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now here's your host, Dr. David Hilden. Hi, and welcome to Episode 4 of the Healthy Matters Podcast. I'm Dr. David
1: Hilden, internal medicine physician and your host of the podcast. Did you know that one in 100 people in the United States is experiencing an opiate addiction. And of those, just a small minority are getting the treatment that they need. Today, I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Charlie Reznikoff, about addiction medicine and the opioid crisis. I work in downtown Minneapolis at a large safety net hospital, and Charlie has been my colleague there for the better part of 20 years serving our patients in addiction medicine. But I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more about that. So, first of all, Charlie, welcome to the show.
2: It's an honor to be here. Thanks a lot.
1: Great to have you here. Uh, Tell us, um, a lot of people don't even know there is such a thing as an addiction medicine doctor. How did you get into it?
2: Yeah, wow. Great question. And I mean, honestly, reflecting on it, I got into this profession the way I I sort of hope anyone would get into a profession. I mean, I just sort of followed my passion. I did what I felt I was doing well, and it really worked out well for me. So, But I do have a great story. And actually, this involves one of your prior guests, Megan Walsh. When I was an intern at Hennepin Healthcare in 2002, one of my very first patients was a young man, Uh, we could just, let's just call him Joe. That wasn't his name, who came in addicted to heroin back in that day, 2002. Heroin was largely among men. Heroin use was among men. Heroin use in Minneapolis was commonly North Minneapolis, more likely African-American. So this was a young African-American man, came in with heroin addiction, but he had a murmur. And so you always worry does he have a heart infection, endocarditis from his heroin use? So they admitted him to the hospital. He was assigned to my team, and he didn't have a heart infection. He had a congenital heart defect, which is a whole another separate interesting thing. But he, his heart was okay. But in just the day that I got to know him, I sat in his, sat in the room with him, and I really like listened to him, and I realized, and I connected with him. And he told me this, you know, in his life and how, how his cousin was a drug dealer and his cousin had sort of pushed heroin onto him and he really was trying to do the right thing but felt sort of trapped by his addiction. And my heart just really went out to him and he he looked me in the eye and he sort of promised me, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get sober. Um. And we, You know, he left. And I thought that was it. Um, it. Two or three days later, and Megan was present for this, Dr. Walsh. Um,
1: and, and let me just, for, for listeners to the podcast, you want to check out episode two where I talk with Dr. Walsh.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Dr. Walsh is amazing. Uh, So Dr. Walsh was one of my senior residents at the time. So, and we were just walking down the hallway and randomly a phone rang and uh, the Huck, the administrator for that um, area of the hospital picked up the phone and sort of said, yeah, yes, really? Well, yes. In fact, Dr. Resnikoff is right here. And she said, you happened to be walking by. And it just like happened to be walking by and Charlie, and she said, Charlie, come over and handed me the phone. And I picked up the phone and it was this guy, Joe, and he was crying. And he said, I failed. I used drugs again. And I I, I don't know what to do. What should I do? And I realized that I, who cared a lot about him and wanted a good result for him, I had no idea what to say. And I had no idea what to tell him. And he here is this young man who was crying, asking for help, and I was unable to give him help. And it and, and you know, ultimately, I ultimately I don't even know what happened to that young man. But it was like my profession calling. It was, it was, it just pulled my heartstrings. I said, There must be a better way. We must be able to help people like this. And and then that was the beginning. And I started seeking out knowledge and how can I help. How can I not let this happen to one of my patients again? And then when someone asks for help, I want to actually be able to offer them real help. So, Holy cow. Yeah. That's
1: how you got into addiction medicine.
2: But it was it was a really important moment. I mean there was many steps, right? But that was a big moment for me.
1: There's a ton I could Unpack with that um, uh, and and that 's an incredible story i didn't i didn 't know that because now i 'll tell i 'll tell listeners what charlie 's deal is now he's the he He is part of a larger addiction medicine program at hennepin where we work there are other doctors there 's counselors there 's all kinds of there 's nurses it 's a large program but I do have to say that you 're sort of become Well known, not only in our organization, but in the state of Minnesota and indeed nationally about addiction medicine. So that little moment that you had with that young man has led to a a heck of a career in addiction medicine. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the disease of addiction, yeah. if you could. Yeah. Because back then, you said it was heroin. And th- if I remember back then, it kind of was a lot of heroin. But there's there's a lot of things people get addicted to. And we forget about alcohol. And then there's amphetamines and all that. Could you give us a little primer, if you will, about the disease of addiction? Is this um, What's the state of it in the world today? Sure. Uh, addiction
2: is many things. First of all, it is genetic, at least partially. Um, probably 50% or more, depending on the study, of risk for addiction is your genetics, and you just can't help that. Now, some of it's also your childhood. Um, trauma in your childhood, events in your childhood, uh, and then, unfortunately, exposure to drugs too early in your childhood when your brain is still vulnerable. So, a uh, an untimely exposure to drugs, trauma in childhood mixed with uh, you know a little bit of bad genetic luck. And uh, an addiction will result. So that's sort of where addiction comes from. Uh, you know, about ten percent of people are either have an addiction or are at very high risk. So about one in ten of us. Ninety percent of us walk around, and you know, we like alcohol, but we could take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. You know, we we could even try. We we receive opioids for medical reasons. We could take it or leave it. 90% of us. But 10% of us are pretty vulnerable to addictions. So that's kind of the general prevalence. And there's lots of different drugs that people get addicted to. Alcohol, stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamines, cannabis. You know, cannabis addictions. Yeah, marijuana addiction is a real thing. It's pretty mild, but it does happen.
1: I think there's a whole episode about marijuana. I would love,
2: I uh, I would love to talk about that. Okay,
1: we're gonna park that one because you know, you know, you know. That's like in politics. You hear state legislatures talking about, you know, this is completely safe, and then the others saying it's like the devil's work. You know,
2: yeah, you're gonna, we're gonna need to get political on that one. (laughs) It's definitely a really amazing topic to talk about marijuana. But you know, there's all these different drugs, and you know and opioids is one of you know six or seven different types of drugs that can
1: all cause addiction so can we can we predict who who those at risk people are because you know I prescribe opioids all the time. Let's just stick with, just yeah. talk about opioids for a second. Yeah. You know, that's those are the drugs that 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 we use for pain largely in the hospital. And I've yeah. prescribed a certain number of those over the years. How is there a way to know who for whom it's dangerous and, and who's at risk for becoming addicted? Yeah.
2: There's no perfect way to predict it, but there are a lot of known risk factors. So what you can't say is you can never tell someone oh you're 100% safe um, what, and you and you also can't tell someone i know you'll get addicted um, neither of those statements you can never really say that that's too much of a generalization but there are risk factors that help us sort of predict this is a high risk situation this is a low risk situation so childhood traumatic events bad things happen in your childhood that are unresolved or just generally untreated mental illness other addictions, if you're drinking too heavily, using other drugs in an addictive pattern, you're also likely to get addicted to opioids. Uh, there's some other adolescence. Being an adolescent when you start opioids is a risk factor. You know, and I think it's not that complicated. You, you have an addiction, you're an adolescent, you've got mental health issues, um, or you've got past trauma that's unresolved. Those are the big ones,
1: I would say. Did we always know this? Because I've been practicing it roughly as long as you have. You know, yeah. I don't know, about 20 years ago. Yeah. I don't remember us hearing this. In fact, I remember going to get my medical license here in the state of Minnesota. And at that time, you had to go there. And you had to, like, prove who you were and all that and when you first got it. And I remember being told... A, they handed like a manual here's some manual of what it, what it takes to be a licensed doctor in our state but here's the one thing we want you to know don't undertreat yeah. pain yeah don't undertreat pain and you do that by prescribing opioids and i remember that message 20 years ago and i don't remember them saying well make sure that you're looking into addictions too just make sure that you give a, a lot of opioids is, yeah. is was that your experience too is this newer evidence that that you're talking about now about risk factors and the like?
2: Yeah, it's new. There's two things I would say about that. One, quickly, there was uh, a couple years ago an incredible expose on our board of medicine. And I I work with our board of medicine frequently now, and I have the greatest respect for them. However, there is a history there of a relationship between almost all state boards of medicines and the lobby that controls at the pain, the pro-pain lobby. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that was recently published in the Minnesota Medicine Journal. It's a, it's a local medical journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a fascinating thing to read. I think anyone could read that and I can send you a link to that later if you want it. But I think one of the best things about being in addiction medicine now is it is such an active growing field for good and for bad every week there's a new article and new information. So what I'm telling you, what I just told you about risk factors for addiction, they really have been established maybe four years ago. And it's just constantly new information, new science. It's a very exciting time to be in this field because we're making incredible advances all the time.
1: Now, you you, you mentioned pain and, and, and I had talked about that. We're not supposed to treat pain. It is also true, isn't it? That you know, people who are at risk for addiction or are actually experiencing an addiction, they have they have that illness, they also get pain. Right. So is, it is a balancing act, isn't it? You know, we used to call pain the fifth vital sign because we had to make sure we asked every single patient who walked in front of us, are you in pain? How do you balance that? Yeah,
2: there's a great article a year ago or so looking at the pathways to addiction. And there's five pathways to addiction. I don't need to go through all of them. But one of them is actually... Under treating pain because the person is so suffering that they seek out whatever they can to take care of their suffering. Another pathway to addiction is over treating pain. <laughs> so it's really a rock and a hard spot, right? Like, and then you know, and and so you can both create an addiction by neglecting pain control and by overdoing it with the opioids. And so it's not. I think it was harder than advertised prescribing opioids for pain. We do need to do it. But we, there's a sweet spot, and we really need to always be looking for that sweet spot enough, but not too much. And again, it's the 10% that are vulnerable. The 90% of us that aren't vulnerable, just we have our surgery, they give us a bottle of pills, and we use one pill, and then we're done. And you know that's been my experience, and I'm just lucky not to be vulnerable.
1: I personally had a m- my most minor little surgery in the history of the world about 10 years ago. And on. It was an outpatient thing. I was in there like for an hour, just a little orthopedic kind of thing. And I got 50 Percocets to go home with. Incredible. I mean, I. Uh, come on. Yeah. I, I don't think I took one of them. Yeah. I, I don't think I needed any, but that was kind of the, the era we were in. So, I'm talking with Dr. Charlie Reznikoff here on the podcast about addiction medicine and the opioid crisis. When we come back, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the effect of the COVID pandemic on people with an opioid addiction, and let's make that connection. And then I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about sort of the
0: stigma of of having sure. an addiction. So, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. Have a question or a comment for the doctor? Become a part of our show by reaching out to us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. That's 612-873-8255. And now let's get back to more healthy conversation.
1: And we're back. Today, we're talking about the opioid crisis and addiction with my colleague, Dr. Charlie Reznikoff. Charlie and I go way back. We've done a lot of uh, traveling together. We've been to conferences together, and I've learned just a ton about addictions from him, as have most of us at um, Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis. He's sort of our go-to guy. And so we're talking about addiction and the opioid crisis today. And could you tell us, Charlie how has COVID-19 in the last two years affected the opioid crisis?
2: It is such an amazing story and great question. Uh, the one thing I have to say to answer this is, and it, many of the listeners may know this, but the way the opioid epidemic happened, first, 20 years ago, opioid use was heroin use, primarily in urban areas, more likely men, more likely African-American. Then we had the overprescription of opioid prescriptions oxycontin and the rest people have heard about it you know and then from there it transitioned from prescription opioids to heroin and that, and and most recently it's transitioned from heroin to fentanyl so fentanyl is an illicit highly potent synthetic opioid that is cooked in China, or at least produced in China and shipped to America, and then it's just, it's it's highly lethal. It's very strong. But
1: it's a drug we use all the time in healthcare settings,
2: it's, right? It's, it's used in the operating room, in the, in the intensive care unit, in very controlled settings. It can be used in some other ways, like a fentanyl patch. Um... So, it can be used in controlled ways in the medical setting. It's not you know, a bad drug in and of itself, but as a street drug being used and dosed by people out on the street, not knowing what the specific potency they're ingesting, it's very dangerous in that way. So, we're in the fentanyl era of the opioid epidemic. Now,
1: now are people... Seek. You know, I, I honestly don't know this. Are people seeking out fentanyl specifically um, uh, through the through the whatever channels, or are they seeking out something else and it's secretly they're getting fentanyl?
2: It's both. There are now people who explicitly want fentanyl, which to me is crazy because it's such. If you just take a little too much, you overdose. But there are people out there that explicitly want fentanyl, but there's also fentanyl is being adulterated into anything and everything. Um, If you think you're borrowing a Percocet or a Vicodin from your friend nowadays, it could be a counterfeit pill with fentanyl in it. If you think you're ingesting a different drug, whether that be methamphetamines would be the most common, but even people are saying marijuana use, Sometimes those other drugs are adulterated with fentanyl. So fentanyl is literally, could be in any drug you ingest and you're not 100% sure what it is.
1: Well, forgive my ignorance. Why? I mean, why, why are, I don't know who makes this stuff, but why, why are people adul- adulterating because it's so,
2: it's so addictive that once, then, you know, it's like, why did caffeine, caffeine is getting put into everything these days because once you get, a, we're both drinking coffee right now, once you get get the appetite for caffeine, it becomes your daily ritual. And so- It's now, mine. You know, you know, me too. And, you know, there's worse things than caffeine use, but my point is you put fentanyl in everything and soon people are going to say, hey, what was that? What was in that? I thought I was just using marijuana, but I felt- relaxed and good and different. So oh yeah, I can get you some of that stuff. So mm. so it's a way of getting more people hooked. Um it's also fentanyl's just cheap. Um I don't so anyways, let me get this to the COVID thing. Where in the world is fentanyl made? Wuhan, China. Get out. Wuhan, China is where fentanyl is made. So, the early days
1: of COVID. Like, you mean the pharmaceutical fentanyl?
2: Yeah. So, in the, yes, the substrate, the chemical substrates used to create fentanyl of any type. Okay. And so, some of that was coming through legitimate channels to become pharmaceutical fentanyl, but some of it was coming through, you know, illicit channels to become street drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, suddenly, the major sort of global supply of this potent addictive street drug got disrupted cuz Wuhan got locked down and suddenly everybody's drug dealer was out of out of supply and so you had to go to find new drugs elsewhere so everybody was just scrambling early on it's an amazing story about the covid opioid epidemic is at the beginning was this mad scramble who's going to supply me with drugs and Meanwhile, everyone's on lockdown, so you're scared to leave your house, your drug dealer's out of supply or has a new supply and you're desperate. And that combination of isolation and desperation and an unknown drug supply resulted in total danger for people, you know, for people who are using opioids on the street. They usually will use the same drug day after day. From the same source. From the same source. And they have a general idea of what it's going to do. And and they use with friends present. So if they use too much, someone can help them. Now they're using alone. They're using new drugs. They don't know how potent it is from a new source. Also, they're more desperate. So they act more impulsively. It's a perfect storm of perfect badness. Storm. Yes, it was a perfect storm. and what And on top of it all, every hospital system as was and is still kind of overwhelmed, so it's hard to go to a doctor. You're a little reluctant to go to the emergency room because the emergency room is full of COVID positive patients. So you're reluctant to go ask for help. Addiction treatment centers—they're all in person. It's group therapy. You can't do group therapy when everyone could have COVID. There's no testing. There's no masks back in those early days. So addiction treatment got shut down. Hospitals were over- overwhelmed. People were isolated. The drug supply was disrupted. I mean, it was a perfect storm for the badness that happened. And the ba- and it was bad. And you can just see the deaths rise starting in April of 2020. It just jumped. And it's just gone up since.
1: Uh, is it still at yeah. higher levels?
2: Yeah. It's so a- you're
1: talking deaths from opioid... Overdose.
2: Yes, that's from opioid overdose. It and in addition to that, infections from opioid use, which we've seen in the hospital, and other consequences of opioid use that have been, you know, very problematic. But that's is the most important one. Obviously, it's gotten better in some. I mean, the, the it the number of deaths have gotten worse. Many of our systems have adapted to COVID, so now we are able to offer treatment by video visit. Um, now we have. Some new tools in place to try to help people, but yet, yeah. So we've adapted to COVID the best we can. But COVID was really a perfect storm for for risk for these
1: folks. What do you tell your patients who are struggling with everything you've just said? They're they're scared of COVID. They're you know, hospitals and clinics are open up now. People can get into them, but I, I imagine that it's going to be a while before we get where, where people feel. Um, where we're back to where we were even before COVID with treatments. So, what what do you tell your patients who are struggling? Right.
2: Yeah. I'm so fortunately one of the wonderful things that happened from the federal government, and you know, again, to be bipartisan in this case, both Republicans and Democrats did this together, um, is they changed how we deliver healthcare. So I can literally take care of someone only with a phone call. If, you know, if, if that's the only way I can reach them, we can do this over a telephone. Um, we can do a video visit. And we also now at Hennepin, we have the capacity to have you come in in person safely with the masks. Um, and so you can come and go and get direct care without, uh, with minimal risk of COVID. Um, And it's probably safer in our clinics than it is on the bus on the way to our clinics, (laughs) frankly. Uh, So we can now take care of people. And I would say, I I would tell the person you've been through a lot, I would validate that. But I would also say when it's time for you to seek care, it is there for you. It is now safe. Um, Don't let COVID be an obstacle. But other things about isolation... Um, how can you find community around you? Because an, uh, someone with an addiction, that's a risk. Someone who's isolated um, without social connection, that's a huge risk if you have an addiction. And so I would say, find your community, put you know healthy people around you. I would make sure they have a naloxone, which is the antidote to overdose. And nowadays, as of six months ago, again, bipartisan, the legislature in Minnesota passed, a bill which allowed fentanyl test strips. So if you're about to use a drug and you're not sure if fentanyl is in it, you can now test it
1: at home, just like our at-home COVID antigen tests. Oh my God, we're going to be testing everything at home. (laughs) We got pregnancy tests, we got COVID, we got fentanyl test strips.
2: Yeah, but I mean, people don't know what they're taking. So it's a way of letting people know what they're taking. So
1: So, so say more about that. They they test the drug they're about to take to see what it is.
2: Yeah, so like if... You know, I'm not condoning these behaviors, but if someone borrows a pill from someone else or someone wants to use uh, methamphetamines or a drug that's not an opioid, a drug that shouldn't cause an overdose, but they say, boy, maybe there's fentanyl now there's fentanyl in everything. So maybe I ought to just test this for purity to see if there's fentanyl in it. And so they can now legally do that at home uh, in Minnesota, and the fentanyl test strips are out there, a number of organizations are distributing them. It's not a perfect test, but it does tell you if this potent, lethal opioid is present in whatever drug you're about to do. That's a,
1: that's a great
2: development. Yeah,
1: you you touched on something. I want to. Um, some drugs are more addictive than others. Yeah, tell us what are they? What are the what are the ones that worry you most?
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's not just the drug, but how you use them. And people might be surprised to know that smoking is the quickest way to get addicted, because it goes from this drug outside your body, a drug in your hand. And then you inhale it. It goes to your lungs, then to your heart, then to your brain. It's the fastest track from outside your body to inside your inhaling brain. Inhaling something. Inhaling exactly it's how nicotine gets in. Exactly. And and so, three seconds, it's in your brain if you inhale it. I mean, it's quick. And so, inhaling a drug is the uh, smoking or in, or vaping are the quickest ways to get addicted. Tobacco. Uh, maybe the most addictive drug there is. It's still incredible. Nothing is more well-engineered than a cigarette. It is the most perfect tool. Uh, they incre- know how deeply oh, you
1: you inhale they know how they know. much is in there they know how often you're going when you're going to smoke your next one that's they know all that right they
2: know it it is a perfectly engineered device for getting you addicted to tobacco so a cigarette is truly a well engineered addiction device so, so
1: nicotine tobacco maybe t- one of the oh, yeah. most
2: addictive yeah. things what then, about alcohol um, Alcohol. So there there are some great charts on this. And I don't know if you have show notes. I can get you some of these charts. (laughs) But the the next one, let me go to the next one, which would be smoked methamphetamines or smoked cocaine. Um, Those are next in line. The meth, methamphetamines and cocaine sort of go straight to the addiction center of the brain and boost dopamine, which is like one of the one of the addiction neurotransmitters. So they sort of directly hijack the ad- addiction center of the brain. So smoked meth, smoked cocaine, um, alcohol, you know...
1: again, I, 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 it, It's probably the, the most used of all yeah. of the substances, But so there might be a lot of people who are addicted to alcohol, but there's a lot that aren't.
2: Yeah, the, the most likely drug for someone to be addicted to is alcohol, but, you know, 70, 80% of us drink. Um, and so the prevalence of alcohol use is really high. The availability of alcohol, I mean, you can get alcohol anywhere. So that kind of changes. So the total number of people with an addiction, tobacco, I think is still number one because tobacco's 20% of Minnesotans, maybe 17% by now of Minnesotans. And then more like 10% or 9% have alcohol use disorder. So in terms of like how common is it? Alcohol is very common, but it's not as addictive as the smoked agents. Um, And then heroin would be, so we go tobacco, methamphetamines, cocaine, and then heroin, and then on down the list would be something like alcohol. And then even farther down the list would be something like marijuana. Even though people smoke marijuana, it is less addictive,
1: but it is still addictive. It's just less so. Related to that, do people um, who have a is there such a thing as an addictive personality? In other words, you know, someone who might be addicted to uh, opioids also might be addicted to gambling or sex or overeating or anything else that's more of a, you know, a behavioral thing. There Is are,
2: that a true thing? Well, you know, we, we would always be careful about calling it a personality. I, I, you're right. But you, you're, you know, so we would be careful about that. There are definitely patterns both people who have a single isolated addiction and that's it. They're addicted to, let's say, opioids um, and they don't struggle with or they have alcoholism. But they can take their opioids just fine without problem. So plenty of people have an isolated addiction that doesn't cause all sorts of other addictions. But there are also plenty of people that have multiple addictions. And there are all sorts of unique patterns. There is a pattern of gambling and alcohol um, so that and what happens is they get sober from alcohol and the gambling gets worse hmm. there's a there's a pattern of eating eating disorders and alcohol um and as you know and those two inter- interact with each other in the same way and then there are people that are have multiple addictions or seem very vulnerable to many different types of addictions there's the the genetics of addiction is very complex uh it's almost so complex that it's honestly not really useful because right, right. we haven't figured it all out yet so uh, we know that it's genetic but there's probably in in many many patterns of genetic um Uh, I don't want to say defects, but genetic variations that can cause addiction. There's many patterns of addiction vulnerability. Uh, So yeah, there are people that have multiple addictions. There are people that have addictions to substances as well as behaviors. And then there are people that have only a single addiction and it doesn't become anything else other than that one addiction. So So
1: are we okay with our coffee then? I, I'm hoping so. <laughs> the most expensive cup of coffee I've ever had in my life <laughs> was with Charlie Resnikoff in Washington, D.C. He wanted to introduce me to the pour over coffee or something like that. We yep, walked yep. All, over, all, all over D.C. and we found a cup of coffee. It was eight or nine bucks or something. It took like eight minutes to make and I think it was the best cup of coffee I ever had. Um, we were paying for the ambiance in the cafe. Oh, of course, of course. It was all about the experience. Um, I'm talking with Dr. Charlie Resnikoff, addiction medicine specialist, At Hennepin Healthcare, um, where I work here in downtown Minneapolis, Uh, before we let you go, Charlie, I want to talk about the last two bits. I want to talk about the stigma around addiction, and then what treatments are available. Where do we? It's still the case, is it not, that people are are that there's a stigma associated with addiction? Right. Comment on that if you could.
2: Yeah, boy. I mean, there's a. I have so I have so many strong feelings about this. Um, The. The first is I feel that it is my job and it is our job not to wallow in frustrations. It is, there is stigma. But I don't want to spend my time, you know, complaining about stigma. What I want to spend my time is going out and educating and reversing the stigma and, you know, combating combating it without complaining about it. Because Mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes we spend all our time something doesn't go our way and we say, "Ah, that's stigma. It's stigma. It becomes an excuse for failure. So I personally will never use the fact that this is a stigmatized disease to be an excuse for me to throw my arms up and say, here we go again. Here comes the stigma again. Um, Because then we always feel like we're the... We're the neglected uh, youngest child. I'm a youngest child. We're the neglected youngest <laughs> so child. You know, whereas cardiology is the you know the big the you know the the big kid who gets the straight A's. The best on one. And exactly. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody.
1: Nobody questions the cardiologists exactly. and people who have a heart attack. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Woe is us. Exactly. So, but but that
2: said, so I'm I'm always reluctant to go there. But that said, um, when when we don't understand things as a society. When there's not enough education, we stigmatize it for sure. Number two, when we don't have good treatments for things, it becomes stigmatized. And I just think addiction medicine is in a spot now where cancer used to be like. You used to not say the word cancer. Like that was a bad was the word. the C word. The C word. Or you and, whispered it. You know, and, and the reason is because it was a really bad thing to have because mm-hmm. we didn't have treatment. Nowadays, it's amazing. And it's getting better all the time. You know, oncology is amazing. Um, Tuberculosis used to be called consumption,
1: right? right? Like
2: it was a personality, not tuberculosis is just a disease. You know, and it it, and it's a it's a treatable disease. And um, depression, depression was very stigmatized and not talked about. Like um, the Kennedy sister Rose was, uh, you know, institutionalized for depression. I think, and um, we didn't talk about it. And then, you know whatever you think of Prozac, Prozac and all of its descendants, all the new antidepressants, now primary care docs can start taking care of depression more safely. And now depression is just part of life that we can understand and talk about. But there was a process of this disease, sort of our knowledge and our treatments of it grew. And as that happened, naturally the stigma falls. And so I I am confident that over time as... As, our, as community knowledge and as treatments improve, the stigma is going to fall. But how does that help someone today? Um, you know, All I can say about it today is I treat all sorts of people, from very successful business people, um, all the way down to someone who's struggling to find housing on a daily basis and is, has a lot of financial and housing struggles. I treat the full spectrum, every race, every national background, Men and women it is a addiction is a very democratic opioid addiction is a very uh egalitarian, egalitarian disease. Disease. disease disease i'm not making it political it's a very right. egalitarian disease, uh, so it can happen to anyone that looks like anything um, and so it could happen to you um, but you can access treatment in a way that's private confidential, protects your dignity in all those ways so I just wouldn't let your uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any listeners let their preconceived notion of who has an addiction affect their personal choices or maybe their ideas about their loved ones.
1: And if any uh, any of the listeners were so fortunate to get to see you or one of your colleagues, I know. Uh, um uh, the impact that you and your team have made here at at Hennepin, and and I know our healthcare system's at least getting a little better nationwide. Yeah, I'm talking to Dr. Charlie Reznikoff, addiction medicine specialist, and we've been talking about the opioid crisis, how it relates to COVID nineteen and and um, addictions in general. Um, thanks for being on the show. Do you have a couple more minutes? Could take a question or two. Sure. Okay, so let's kind of jump to a little impromptu session of Hilden's House Calls. That's the the segments where I answer uh, questions. And uh, although I haven't uh, kind of given you any warning, we have some questions that came in from
0: listeners about addiction. Great. Bring it on. All right, guys. Now, this is a question from Carol in Eden Prairie. And she's wondering, Dr. Reznikoff, do you have any self-help recommendations for anyone with their addiction or addictions outside of quitting cold turkey if they're opposed to getting professional help?
2: Wow, thank you to Carol for such a thoughtful question. Um, again, Carol's asking what people can do on their own if they think they're struggling with an addiction. Yeah, I have a number of a number of things. The first thing is it is really important to have and maintain healthy relationships. So you know we all have unhealthy friends who take us out and we drink too much or whatever. but it's really important that we all maintain our relationships with, healthy friends, sober friends, friends that you can do sober activities with. So how can you continue to have connections to healthy people in your life? People who care, the people who love you and care about you, regardless of whether you drink or not, or regardless of whether you use drugs or not, those are the people that are going to be your foundation going forward. So keep your connections. I think that's number one. Um, Number two, triggers to use drugs come in one of three varieties. Number one. Um, people, places, and things, Um, objects in the world that trigger you. And that could be an individual that could be driving down a road. You see your favorite bar and you pull over and go into your bar. Maybe just don't drive down that road. Um, That could be if you smoke marijuana, the pipe. If the pipe is sitting out, you're going to want to fill it and use it. So remove those objects that trigger you. That's number one. Number two, unwanted emotions. So you're anxious, you're stressed. The holidays do this to people. You're anxious, you're stressed. That distress, unwanted emotion you have, you don't know what to do with it, so you use drugs. So start developing other techniques to manage that unwanted, those unwanted emotions. And the final sort of at-home tip, do-it-yourself tip, is being self-aware of your thoughts because we talk ourselves into things. If it's food for me, oh, I'll just have a little bite. I'll just look at that brownie there. I have no idea what you're talking I'll about, just, Charlie. I'll just cut off a corner of the brownie. I won't eat the whole brownie. Well, you know what? I'm talking myself into it. But you know, if we can talk ourselves into something, we can also talk ourselves out of something. But we need to be self-aware of what our brain is doing, our narratives in our mind. So I would say people, places, and things, managing your unwanted emotions, and managing those that self-talk you do that lets you talk yourself into or out of an unhealthy behavior. Do those things and stay connected to your community. Read up on addiction from reliable resources. I think that would be a good start.
1: Some of those are tips for all of us.
2: Yeah. Those oh, are yeah. good tips. Yeah. Addiction is really about managing reward. Um, how do you get rewards in your life? And are you seeking and receiving rewards in a healthy way or an unhealthy way? And that's true for all of us, whether, you know, whether we have an addiction or not. Um, we all are, you know, need a little joy in life. Um, hopefully that joy comes in, an, in a healthy package.
0: Thanks for that. And here's one from Tina in Woodbury. I recently had knee surgery and was prescribed oxycodone. It is helping with the pain. However, I'm curious about how much I should be taking and how long I should be taking it for. I'm leery of addiction. Is there a certain guideline or rule I can follow to help me? Great.
2: Yeah, this is a great question. First of all, knee surgeries can be pretty painful. So that's one where people are routinely put on opioids and that's that's okay.
1: What's oxycodone?
2: Oxycodone is a standard opioid prescription. It's pretty universally you know, there's not a lot of drug interactions, there's not a lot of precautions around it. It's a very standard opioid pain medicine to be prescribed.
1: And, and it's the active ingredient in Percocet, right?
2: Yeah. And Percocet, it, you know, it's actually the active ingredient in OxyContin, which got a really bad name, of course, for separate reasons. This oxycodone you've been prescribed has not got the same risks as a high-dose OxyContin pill that caused all those problems. Um, you know, I think most surgeons would say, at least the first week, um, you're going to be taking some... Uh, some oxycodone. I think also to be self-aware that if if you have a personal history of addiction, it might be a little more of a risk. Not that you shouldn't take any, but you just need to be self-aware of the risk. If you have a personal history of a mental health issue, such as anxiety or depression, and it's symptomatic for you now, like you're really anxious or depressed right now, there's a little more of a risk. Again, you can still take these meds, but you just need to be aware. Um, And then you know, I think finding a timely way to discontinue them is going to be a judgment call on your part. Um, and It'll be a little bit of trial and error. And Most people who don't have an addictive history, who don't have an untreated mental health issue, are going to be able to navigate that just fine. They're going to be able to trial and error, try off of them, see if they can get by off of them, and basically take themselves off at the appropriate time. If you do have some mental health symptoms or some addiction history in in yourself or maybe a first-degree relative, you might need the guidance of a primary care doctor or even the surgeon to say, hey, it's time to stop. And I I would just encourage you to really have open dialogues with your providers if you're worried it's going on too long. Um, But yeah, if, if it's working for you right now, within a week of the surgery for sure, maybe a little past a week of the surgery, use it if you need it do some trial and error on whether you can get by without it uh, and and trust yourself in that way i would say
1: i like what you said about sort of the mindfulness bit you yeah. know don't just mindlessly take it um, okay. on some schedule indefinitely you know after a few days or a week or so ask yourself is this the time when i can start when i don't maybe don't need this
2: actually one of our colleagues dr shafto maybe you, i'm sure you've spoken to her in the past she has incredible advice for people taking medicines of all sorts Before you take that pill, whatever it is, pause and be mindful. What is this? Be grateful that medicine has provided a solution for you, but also be mindful of it. And I just think that's such great advice. That's That's
0: outstanding advice. Charlie, here's an interesting question. All right. This one comes from Jose in St. Paul. He has a question about Kratom and was curious if you have an opinion about it or other drugs that are considered to be sort of an off-ramp from some of the heavier drugs.
2: Right. Wow. Great question. Um, kratom is uh, a drug that activates the opioid receptor. So if you struggle with opioids, you might equally struggle with kratom. Um, it is currently available. People get it on the internet. People get it from you know smoke shops and things like that. Uh, it's not anything that we would recommend honestly. And the reason why is because we have a few medications that have really good evidence in science to help people either wean off or just beyond maintenance. That said, we understand that people out there in the community are trying these things. So it's kind of one of those, it's, it's, it's new, there's not a ton of science on it. It is a mild opioid. So you are still on an opioid, you're just on a milder one. So if people go about doing that, you know, so be it. Keep in mind that there are scientifically proven evidence-based type alternatives to it. And also keep in mind that some people do have a problem with kratom as well. So, and that's kind of what I would say to Jose, um, is to, if you're going to proceed, proceed with caution. uh, Understanding that this is sort of a bit of a home remedy and not within the world of medicine.
1: Seems like pretty good advice to me. Yeah. There are things that work.
2: There are things that work. Um, And the only other thing I would say to that is if you're really struggling with opioids, you know, there's not a cure. If kratom was a cure, we would know about it by now. So there are treatments, but if you look, a lot of people are looking for an easy cure and, and that's just, it's just not out there. And anyone promising you an easy cure, just do this one thing for, you know, three weeks or a month or something, and then you'll be cured and done with it, move on with your life. Well, you can try those things, but also you have to be a little skeptical. This is a this is a hard disease to cure, but there are, there are treatments for it.
1: Well, thank you, Charlie. I've been talking with Dr. Charlie Reznikoff. He's an addiction medicine doctor at Hennepin Healthcare here with me in downtown Minneapolis. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks oh, a ton. It's been awesome being here. Thank you. So that's all for today. I hope you'll join us for our next episode where we'll answer the question, has anyone ever died of a broken heart? We hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, be safe,
0: be healthy, and be well. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters podcast with Dr. David Hilden. To keep up to date with the latest in healthcare and your health, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on Healthy Matters or to browse the archive, visit our website at healthymatters.org. And if you have a question or comment for the doctor, email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. To catch all the latest from Dr. Hilden and the Healthy Matters podcast, follow us on Twitter at drdavidhilden. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, please leave us a review and share the Healthy Matters podcast with your friends and family. The Healthy Matters podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota and engineered by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have more serious or pressing health concerns. Until next time, be healthy and be well.